The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Welcome back to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for IGN, The Wrap, and CriticallyAcclaimed.net. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the other guy. Great. That that really helps people find your work, Whitney. I don't understand. You, 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 why? Why do you sabotage yours? He writes for IGN. He's I, really talented. I, I write for IGN occasionally. Uh, I write for uh, other websites occasionally. Okay. I appear on the radio from time to time. You co-host our, our website, our uh, podcast, Critically Acclaimed. Critically Acclaimed. I, I, and I write for CriticallyAcclaimed.net, which sure is our, our all-in website. I watched a movie at the behest of one of our listeners. Hmm. Uh, one of the perks on our $10 Patreon tiers that you can assign us articles. And uh, the next three of my articles are all film reviews. Cool. Um, which I would, films I would not expect to review. One I would. One mm. is actually a film I own and I'm very fond of and I talk, I've talked of it before, which is why I guess I've been assigned it. The other two, not familiar with them. Totally random. One of them is so bad that I'm wondering if the assigner wanted to hurt me in some way. Well, but we'll see. You know, we're film critics. This is well, like this, this is have, our this is have, our metier. We have to watch Neil Breen just to get back to zero. Like it's <laughs> it's like train spotting Where, after a while. Where's the ground? <laughs> our head is our head is in the clouds. But Let's watch some Neil Breen to remind us where the floor is. But that is a separate issue. Uh, mm. The important thing is that we are here for scary Toba. <laughs> uh, all and from- tonight's nasty nugget. Oh God. <laughs> Uh, all throughout the month of October, scab of scariness. All throughout the month of October, <laughs> we're going to be reviewing horror-themed shows mm-hmm. that were canceled in one season or less, and we're going to talk about some really, really famous ones. But this week, we're going to review one that slipped under my radar, and I think it slipped under everyone else's. Too. Oh yeah, because this is a spinoff of a beloved kids show from the 1980s called Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. A lot of uh, notable directors worked on Fairy Tale Theater. A, uh, a lot of big actors. Uh, like the pilot episode had Robin Williams after he was big. Yeah, as the Frog Prince, so he was in a frog suit throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Um, the Aladdin episode was directed by Tim Burton. Uh, oh, I so, forgot about yeah, that. So, yeah, so yeah. So there were some notable people involved with this show, and you know, Shelley Duvall. Well, Shelley Duvall, you know, is a known quantity. She's a famous actress, and she mm-hmm. knows everyone in Hollywood. So she just asked her famous friends to be on her kids' program, and they said, "Sure, yeah." And I a got lot the weekend of, free, and a lot of them actually did it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they weren't getting a ton of money. This was for like Showtime in the eighties. <laughs> original content <laughs> before on the, Showtime was a thing. Well, yeah. Original content on cable was seen as just sort of like, oh yeah, we did a couple. We did a sitcom. Mm-hmm. 
We had, we had Gary Shandling had his own sitcom for a bit, like that kind of thing. But like, it wasn't like you know Game of Thrones and stuff. So like, this was a real novelty having all of these big stars doing kids oriented programming. Most of which is still really, really fun and cute if you watch it today. It's a little dated, you know, visually, but it's uh, still it, adorable. It was it was shot on video and doesn't have yeah. the greatest special effects, but the costumes were whatever the you know fine for whatever the studio had in their closet. Uh, so that led to not one but two sitcoms. Two spinoffs. Uh, two, uh, two, not sitcoms. Spinoffs. It's late. <laughs> uh, that led to two spinoffs. One of which uh, lasted two seasons, called mm-hmm. Tall Tales and Legends. That was nominated for an Emmy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, I think Shelley Duvall won a Peabody for that. I think I thought she won a Peabody for Fairy Tale Theater. Uh, regard- then, oh yeah, she won a yeah. Peabody for Fairy Tale Theater. You're right, my mm-hmm. bad. Um, and then she decided. And I think God bless her for it. She wanted to grow up with the Target demo, Fairytale Theater, which had been going on for many years, um, and start doing a PG-13 oriented adapt- series of adaptations with all-star casts of classic horror stories. Mm-hmm. And it was called Nightmare Classics. You should play that as as our music cue. Yeah, we're not doing that. Uh, uh. There were there are no <laughs> clips for Nightmare Classics. It was not popular. It was not advertised very much. There was one cool ad I was able to find. It, it wouldn't make any sense to like just play you the audio because what it is is it's a POV of someone in a grave and you just see the shovel scooping dirt on it mm-hmm. and then as the dirt covers the camera it just says Nightmare Classics. That's pretty fun. It's a great ad it's just not going to play yeah. on the radio. <laughs> and you say they're based on horror famous horror literature and uh, 19th century horror, horror literature specifically. Uh, at least in, at least as far as they got, yeah. But they don't don't start with Dracula, which you'd think they would. Yeah. Or well, Frankenstein, which you'd think they would. Well, you don't want to, you don't want to, like, here's the thing with the, this kind of anthology show. You don't want to do all the, it's kind of like our show. You don't want to do all the famous ones up front. Well, you want to do a, a really famous one right up front and then save, like, other famous ones for later on. Yes, exactly. You want to, you want to start strong mm-hmm. and then spread it out a bit because like if you do Dracula and the and uh, mm. the Invisible Man and Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde you do all of those all at once yeah. what do you got left for season two yeah you're gonna yeah. have more gonna obscure have one, stuff one of those every season exactly so this show lasted four episodes it was supposed to last six episodes and it didn't. <laughs> it was canceled after four episodes. Yep, didn't get to the last two. I couldn't, based on my research, I did a little research, I couldn't figure out what the last two were supposed to be. Although clearly mm-hmm. they would have, I mean, they never got to an Edgar Allan Poe episode. There were a bunch of episodes. Although every episode did start with an Edgar Allan Poe quote mm-hmm. uh, read by Linda Hunt. And that was her only role in this whole show. She just said one line. One line. And they and they looped it. Mm-hmm. It's like that. It's like on The Simpsons, that lady who did the Roadrunner meep and they just looped it oh it's <laughs> like I, I just half as much i just did one meep and they looped it yeah bastards <laughs> you know fairytale theater was, i was actually disappointed to discover that this wasn't hosted by shelly duvall mm. because shelly duvall hosted fairytale theater and it was she, yeah, was, she was always was, in these fantastical costumes and yeah, she, she really was. invited you in, in and fact, weren't there kids surrounding her if i, I haven't seen i haven't seen the show for a long, <sighs> it's been time. A long time but yeah she would she was the crypt keeper of the show she would address mm-hmm. the camera and say welcome to the show and today we're going to learn about the frog prince and it's yeah. gonna be really terrific it was it was basically inviting you into like this mm. whole history of literature and frankly I think that's missing from Nightmare Classics because we want y- y- to have that Crypt Keeper you know, mm. literally but like to have that host yeah. that Elvira that Vincent Price type whatever you mm. want to do with it um, 
makes you feel like you're in on something. It you makes know, it feel like you've got a cool professor. You know who you get? Robert Mitchum. Yeah, Robert he was around, yeah. He was around. He, he would have really, done it. He only did that, like that one horror movie, and even Night of the Hunter is kind of nebulous. Yeah, like, it's, like, so it's not really, it's, it's scary. thriller, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you put it in the horror section, I wouldn't bat an eye, but I wouldn't. I would also say you could put it in a drama, and it's fine. Mm. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so this doesn't have a proper host. It just has Linda Hunt saying, "All that we are and all that we seem is not, all, what, is, what is, but, is but a dream within a dream." Yeah, man. it's a good line, mm. but again, we just sort of dumped into what ends up being without that context. An adaptation of a classic story. We've got an adaptation of uh, uh, The Turn of the Screw, mm. which was, of course, turned into a great motion picture called The Innocence. Um, we have Carmilla, which is an early vampire story, which was eventually adapted into the Karnstein trilogy of Hammer horror films. That's some of the best work Hammer ever did, if you ask mm. me. Um, we have The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is, of course... The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know what that is. <laughs> the most obscure one they got is The Eyes of the Panther, which is based on an Ambrose Beer story mm-hmm. about a were-panther. And that story isn't widely read as much as I... Uh, not, uh, to well, to like, my knowledge. But what it became, it inspired cat people. Ambrose, and that became more famous. Ambrose Bierce is one of those weird nebulous literary personalities who's not necessarily known for a single work. Yeah, per se, He's as, known for being witty, as, for, for being witty, and for having a great body of short stories. You know, it's like Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. You know who wrote that? Oh, it was Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson. He yeah, also wrote like, a ton of great stuff. He wasn't oh. his only. This wasn't his only hit. The, well, yeah. that, that's true. But you know, I guess Carmilla is a little bit more obscure. But you know, Turn of the Screw. That's Henry James. You know, you, yeah. you know these who these people are and what the stories are. And even if you've never read Turn of the Screw, you kind of know what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's kind of leaked down to you through cultural osmosis. If, if, and even if you don't think you have, once you're watching it, it'd be like, I've kind of seen oh, this. Oh, I've seen yeah, stuff yeah. that was influenced by this. You look at something, every, a lot of gothic haunted house literature, the haunting feels a little bit yeah. like it. Or um, I'm surprised um, they didn't do, maybe Shirley Jackson was one of their, their untapped well, episodes. Well, for me, when I think, when I think of these nightmare classics, these are all public domain. Mm-hmm. So, what they they probably would have lived mostly in the 19th century, and then gotten into like the first half of the 21st with people like H.P. Lovecraft, who had gone mm. kind of you know or 20th. Well, I'm sorry, I said yeah. 20th. You said 21st. My apologies, but God, it's late. But yeah, like uh, and the early yeah, like H.P. Love- Lovecraft is in public domain. You could have done domain, yeah. you know I don't know Watcher Out of Time. Or, yeah, well, some, maybe not something so big like um, you could have you done the Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward or something, uh, which is pretty sure. which is pretty intimate. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't oh, what, kick a huge budget. What was the one of the guy who like wanders in this title of the the Lovecraft story where a fellow's mm. lost in the woods and he wanders into a home and there's this kooky old guy there and, oh, says, uh, and there's vivisection. I love vivisection and and then like blood starts dripping from the ceiling. Oh, yeah, and that's kind of the end of the story. It's actually just called like the old shack or something. Something like that. Like that yeah, yeah, I'm gonna look that up just so we can set. But like, there's a ton of there's a ton of material. You definitely mm. could have done a bunch of seasons of this if you really really wanted to. This show ran from August 12th through November 26, 1989, which makes it sound like it was longer than it was. They we're not one a month. Hmm. It's an well, odd schedule. It's an odd schedule, but it makes sense because there were because there was no uh, crypt keeper element, like no host to the show. Mm-hmm. These play a lot more like movies of the week than they do. TV episodes. And they have that movie of the week vibe where they yeah, got there's, a, there's from the eighties where they got like a good cast, new, but there's, there's no new, atmosphere. There's all new sets. It's really, yeah. you know, the kind of clear studio lighting. Uh, there's, it's a new story every time. It's a new cast every time. This is a big production and they probably couldn't have churned these out on a weekly basis 
on the scale that they did. Well, not, I mean, not all year turn, round, but you yeah, could have done like the, 10. Turn of the Screw takes place, like they went to location. They went to an out, there's a lot of outdoor scenes in an actual castle. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, indoor scenes within the castle. They had to really make a big production of something like that. The H.P. Lovecraft story is the picture in the house. The picture in the house. Because he sees the picture. That's right. That's what clues him mm-hmm. into the problem. Yeah, Lovecraft had, had such descriptive titles. Yeah, we could have The like rats that. in the walls, the thing in the cave. But that's evocative, though. Uh, like, yeah, I guess You're so. starting to fill in the gaps in your head. I love Lovecraft. Um, oh, me too. No, yeah. no. I, it, it, even, even now that I'm not a teenager, I still like Lovecraft. So the vibe that you get from something like fairytale theater was, oh, isn't this cute? Everyone's coming together to tell a little story. Mm. The vibe you get from Nightmare Classics is everyone's getting together to do a lower-budgeted masterpiece theater adaptation of an mm. old horror story. Yeah, and, and they're they're not even playing up the gore or the fright in a way that they would have in something more sensational like Tales from the Crypt, which is actually, running concurrently. It's actually really surreal mm. to watch the show because so much of it is PG at most. Like, there's some adult themes, mm. but there's really nothing horrible going on. But then, like, halfway through Carmilla, someone will get staked in the head and it's got a <laughs> close-up of it. And you're like, what the whoa so there's always like that one moment Mm. in anyone where it's just like it's way darker or way more violent but it's only that one moment and everything else feels like a pretty standard straight to tv production or something i mean kid i said i've been saying this for a while kids you know when they're exploring through media and going through horror films they're exploring something that they want they want to be scared they want to be shocked a little bit Maybe they go a little bit too far with their sort of experiments and fear, but I think a little kid watching something like Carmilla would kind of be waiting for that moment and kind of be looking forward for that little moment of extreme gore, extreme violence that they can kind of push the limits with and see if they're okay with it. Well, and I think this is something that we lose sight of when we watch uh, older television, Mm. um, is that... Older TV, there was there was certainly a house aesthetic through mm. a lot of made-for-TV content. Oh, which for is sure. why something like Twin Peaks, when it came out, was a huge shot in the arm because just nothing was made like that. But like there was just a general TV look. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that even lighting, yeah. same kind of camera angles. A certain yeah. amount of TV kind of content. You can only be so scary, which is why some of the TV movies that terrify people when they were kids. They don't always hold up super well to modern audiences because you're sitting through the standard TV material, and then when something really scary happens, it really (laughs) scares the crap out of you. A great example of this is uh, Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot, Mm -hmm. which was heralded as one of the scariest things ever when it came out. You watch it today. It's a TV miniseries based on a Stephen King novel about vampires. Almost nothing happens for like the first two thirds of it. <laughs> and you realize that that was them lulling you into like this sense of security. This is safe television. And then there's that fucking scene with the kid at the window floating. And you're like, oh my God, that's the scariest thing ever. <laughs> but we don't have that baseline anymore. Or like Stephen King's It was another one of those where yeah. a lot of it's well, a pretty standard TV movie about kids growing up or adults coming back together. And then that demon clown rips his face off. And you're like, holy crap. That that weird stop motion bit scared me. Oh, when it's I was great! Young. Yeah, where he like climbs up out of the drain because there's nothing else like yeah, it in not, the movie. That's really it's super strange. surreal. And Nightmare Classics kind of plays the same way. You're watching this pretty straightforward, mm. uh, impressively creepy. Like I, I liked in particular like the adaptation of the Turning of the Screw, but mm. uh, 
And then all of a sudden, they'll like show like, oh, someone's looking at a book, and they look at the picture, and it's hardcore pornography. <laughs> it's drawn, but it's hardcore pornography. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, whoa, I thought I could watch this with my kids. Like, holy crap, Shelley well, Duvall. Like, we're talking about this as if we're kids watching this, and you said it was like trying to grow up the aesthetic, but these were based on very sophisticated pieces of literature. And when The Turn of the Screw was written... Henry James didn't want kids to read that. No. He, you know, he wanted adults to read that. And of course, you know the the idea of what was an adult and what was a kid, of course, was much different in mm-hmm. in the nineteenth century. Yeah, kids and, weren't as protected but, from uh, harsh material as they are now. But also, kids weren't given books the same way. Uh, they weren't, you know, mm. a 12 year old wasn't going to hunker down with something like the Turn of the Screw. That was meant for thirty year olds. That was meant for you know the educated uh, masses, and. Uh, I think Shelley Duvall is capturing that vibe really well. This is actually a show for adults, and it's for people who are savvy, who are savvy to literature, and are well read, and probably know the stories really well. Yeah, uh, and, and think, that's not kids. Well, I also think that's that I think it's one of the reasons why the show had trouble finding an audience. Was mm-hmm. one, you had the kid demographic, which is now a little alienated. Mm-hmm. Adults might be less willing to let their kids watch it. This was on late at night. This is on like a ten. Mm-hmm. So this is not like, you know, prime time storytelling. You have to stay up past your bedtime <laughs> to watch this. And then I think when adults watch it, they've probably seen the serious adaptations of these, which are heavier and more atmospheric mm-hmm. and sometimes more violent. And I, I, I think it's in this weird in-between place, but it's an interesting place to visit. So let's talk about them one at a time. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first episode is The Turn of the Screw. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stars Amy Irving. Um, as the governess mm. who goes to a new estate, who's, Bly Manor. Who's, who's an okay actress. She's okay. She's okay. I like her fine. Uh, she's uh, hired by David Hemmings from uh, Blow Up and Deep Barbarella, Red. Yeah. yeah. David Hemmings is great. And he <laughs> hires her to take care of his niece and his nephew. His his nephew is played by young Balthazar Getty. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who, who mysteriously has no accent, but whatever. <laughs> oh, whatever. He sounds like a Southern California kid. It's but. something they really struggle with throughout the whole series, actually. <laughs> um, she's hired to look after these kids, and she gets there, and the kids are weird. They're they're obsessed with death. They and know a little bit too much about adult matters. Yeah, the Balthazar Getty is, like, weird. And he's, like, 13, 14 in this. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's really young. He's really flirtatious with her in a way that makes her incredibly uncomfortable. And not just like kid stuff, like just like really forward. And you're just like, holy crap. And she comes to realize over time that the previous caretaker of the manor and the previous governess, A, had an affair. B, Mm. did some horrible things. He was hanged for murder. Um, And their ghosts are haunting the place and having a prolonged Mm. impact on these kids. And that's basically the turn of the screw. Although... Have you read Henry James? I've seen The Innocents. Okay. Um, Henry James does not write in a sort of sensational style. And uh, he... There, there's a really great... I wish I could remember the title of it. I, there's a really great Henry James short story. It's where uh, a fellow goes into a haunted house. And you realize that you've spent 15 pages of this short story where the character is standing on one side of a closed door too afraid to open it. And that's all that's happening in the scene. 
you sort of like get these weird visions. I, I was that a shadow? And I think and my I think of like what it would feel like in my hands, like all these descriptions. Yeah, getting the entire atmosphere down, making you feel this immense dread, and there's no action whatsoever. So it's bizarre that you would want to start a visual medium with something like Henry James, because Henry James is so much about atmosphere and language. Well, I suspect... And Turn of the Screw, at least it's a, an eventful enough story, especially if you condense it down to a 45-minute TV episode, or 25 yeah, minutes tight. worth of TV. It's pretty tight. Um, I don't know, I think... It, it, but it does feel like they're trying to pat it out and make it seem more sensationalistic than atmospheric. I get that more from the other episodes than I do uh, from the Turn mm-hmm. of the Screw episode. Well, I feel even, like, yeah, it's even more so for the other like, episodes. The, the, so, like, the Turn of the Screw is near as I can tell. Again, I have read the book. I've seen The Innocence. I know mm-hmm. the story. It's pretty faithful. Mm-hmm. Uh they take some serious liberties with a lot of the other ones. Like they make some huge changes <laughs> to some of the other stories. Uh, but you know, turn the screw. There's a, there's enough material here that you don't need to add anything. You can just, you can cut it down a little bit and make it really, really trim. I suspect one of the reasons why they wanted to do this one first is because there's a real mature subtext. Yeah. 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 Uh, to the story that, you know, really sets it apart from the other fairy tough jelly Duvall shows. Corruption, adult sexuality, murder, and you know, like the consequences of murder, not that sort of sensational murder. Like you would see on, well, on tales from the crypt. Right. Right. You know, the actual like lingering psychological consequences. Right. 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 Um, but I also think because it had been the innocence, they knew the story worked. (laughs) And the innocence is, the innocence is directed by Jack Clayton. It stars Deborah Carr, Michael Redgrave, it is one of the great haunted house movies, and there's a bunch. There's a lot of great haunted house movies, but I put this in the top five. Mm. Like it's really just it's it's atmospheric, it's terrifying, and one of the great things that I love about it, and I think the the Nightmare Classics one gets it across too, is you can take it literally or not. Oh, there you go. And in, yeah. the, in the case of in the case of the Turn of the Screw, what you have here is a story of children who are haunted by these weird corrupting abusive influences Mm -hmm. now you can take that as the ghosts are literally there or these kids were abused yeah and they are acting out and they no longer know how to interact with people outside of this really gross relationship they had with these two adults and that is tragic and that is horrifying and it comes across that's kind of exactly what the book is about because It, it it shows the way the children behave are completely in line with the way abused children behave, where yeah. they're they're withdrawn, they're a little bit too brash, they're a little bit too mature, they're cynical, mm-hmm. and they know about death, and they're kind of depressed. And now that their abusers are gone, they don't really know what to do with that information, and they don't know how to talk about it because this is the 19th century. Yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, psychology I, barely existed. Th- this this is definitely a story about abused children and. Balthazar Getty, I'm not sure if he got the letter, because <laughs> he's, he's playing it a little, like, it, it reads to an adult audience, but he's playing it like he's a villain. But I think that's what he's doing. I think he's mm. emulating the person who had the power dynamic. I think he's emulating, mm. that. that's all he knows. In order to be strong, mm. he has to be the person who hurt him. Yeah. And I think that's something Balthazar Getty is doing reasonably well. well okay. I think I think it's fair to say that there's a level of nuance in mm. this material that is a little beyond I, I would say him and Amy Irving, who has a, is a good yeah. <laughs> is a good presence and can often make a scene work, but there's times when like I was actually had like a bit of a disagreement with my wife Michelle, she mm. watched this one with me and um 
there's an opening scene with David Hemmings and he's hiring her mm. and he gets fresh with her and basically you know tries to invite himself over to her apartment mm. and she says no and I thought that was her being relatively Puritan, which of course will come into play later. And Michelle was like, "No, like, she's meant to be into him. Look at like the way that she, the, the camera like lingers mm. on David Hemmings." And part of me <laughs> well, is just not into David Hemmings, but like, well, I, come he's on, a great Dave, he's he's a he's a handsome man. He's well, okay, he's a little older here, but yeah, well, like I know, I just, you watch I, Barbarella, man. Fair enough. I just didn't pick up on it, and I, I think part of that is. Maybe a little uncertainty in the performance. Maybe trying to have it both ways. Mm. Um, overall, though, for like, if you were looking at this, just like, look, they just made a made for an hour long made for TV turn of the screw. Mm. This is okay. It's, it gets a little spooky. It gets pretty dark. Um, I don't think it's the best episode that they've got here, uh, but it's it's pretty good. What do you what do, what do you think overall of the? Um, it, it's the best of the four episodes. You think so? Uh, I, I think it, like, it feels the most sophisticated. It seems like a good statement of purpose to go out on. Right. And it, it's familiar enough material that I think they're just comfortable with it. Yeah. Even though I think both Balthazar Zargetti and Amy Irving are playing it as playing it very well, <laughs> I can understand what they're getting at. So yeah, that's right. that's fine. Uh, the next episode is Carmilla. Mm. Uh, which is based on a story by, I can never remember the name, Joseph Sheridan Lafanu. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the first vampire stories that really caught the imagination. This is precedes Dracula by decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the story of a young woman. She is uh, affluent but sheltered. And into her life comes a more worldly woman who entices her to various pleasures. And they're lesbian lovers. They're lesbian lovers. Yeah, that's it, that's it, the, the sub, not quite subtext. The, the subtext is in neon. Like you can't <laughs> miss it. And to and to the show's credit, I mean, like if you look at the Hammer horror versions of this, the Karnstein trilogy, which I think began with Vampire Lovers, mm. uh, I mean, it's all over it because Vamp- Hammer was lurid. There, yeah, there were, uh, and there have been like straight up lesbian adaptations of stories like this. Absolutely. Uh, every vampire lesbian story is kind of based on this. But this one, I, I, I give them credit for again. They're trying to work within this mostly PG thirteen mold. Um, it really comes across, and I think it comes across because but because of Meg Tilly, <laughs> mostly because of Meg Tilly. So uh, Meg Tilly plays the vampire Carmilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ioni Sky from Say Anything mm. uh, plays what's her what's her name plays Marie the, the innocent Mar- yeah, yeah Marie um, and Meg Tilly is an actor who I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about like she came oh, out in goodness, the, no. she was a big deal in the eighties oh, that's true a, she she was working more in the eighties she was working but, a lot more she was in the Big Chill mm. um, I, I love her in uh, Abel Ferrara's Body Snatchers. She was in uh, the not dangerous liaisons, dangerous liaisons, Valmont from this like yeah. around the same time. So she's Jennifer Tilly's sister. So you'll if you watch her, you'll like notice they sound alike a little mm. bit and they have similar features. Mm. And Jennifer Tilly just like the eighties were for Meg Tilly and the nineties were for Jennifer Tilly. <laughs> and they got to take turns. They got to take turns, which is a very very polite way to handle it, I think. Um, but Meg Tilly's a really great actor. I'm yeah, a big yeah. big fan of Meg Tilly. So her cast is Carmilla mm. in anything i'm like that's good casting i want to see that <laughs> the weird thing she, she's also an award-winning author meg tilly oh no shit i yeah. didn't know that um the weird thing with this adaptation of carmilla is that they moved it to like civil war america uh, well I, the the book was written about that time but it wasn't set in america uh, it, was written, uh, it, was, it was written in like the 1870s which is sh- shortly after the civil war but um yeah 
I clearly they they were just working with where they could film. Yeah, th- it does not look like England. They, maybe the, maybe the accent is a little Ioni, beyond the actors. They cast Ioni Sky. They said oh, you, you're just not British. You're way <laughs> too American for this. She's definitely got an American vibe. Yeah, yeah. So so they so they lean so into they, more of a they Gone with the it, Wind aesthetic, which is fine because the vampire is the ghost of the war, and I think that actually plays in really well with the setting. My point is this: mm-hmm. it's not that it's necessarily a terrible change. It's actually perfectly fine. I think when you look at like classic iconic literature one of the things that makes it so great is that you can transpose it into Mm -hmm. different time periods and different uh uh, various aesthetics even Mm -hmm. and you the the root story will still be good you can see this happen with shakespeare a lot Mm -hmm. you can set shakespeare in world war ii and it can still be great right um so setting carmela somewhere else in time is fine the themes are still resonant What's odd for me is that this is called Nightmare Classics, and I would have thought fealty would be a little <laughs> bit more of a mission statement, yeah. just to sort of give people um, the cliffs notes at least for like, like, yeah, I, I read that book. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I'm, you, you can kind of fake it in class yeah, if your teacher like, asks you a question. Like you could do it with Turn of the Screw. Like yeah. you, could, you could get away with it, and, and less so Jekyll and Hyde, but we'll get to that in a minute. Mm. Carmilla, it's like, yeah, it takes place in uh, uh, colonial, like, in, uh, in a post Civil War America. No, it doesn't. <laughs> well, I, you I'm, fail this test. I, I'm maybe it helps that I'm not as intimately familiar with Carmilla as I am with Jekyll and Hyde or with mm-hmm. or with Turn of the Screw. So I, I'm willing to be a little bit more forgiving for the, their straying from the material. Maybe because this is just a better introduction to it for me. Um, had I been more familiar, I would have been crying foul. I'm not even crying foul. I just think it's odd. I think it's just it's just really unusual. And like we'll look at the way that they like they extended uh, Beers's Eyes of the Panther. Like mm-hmm. I get why they did that. It makes sense. I I don't think it helps, but I get it. Mm-hmm. Here it just seems kind of random, but mm-hmm. uh it's it's frustrating uh, watching so many like vampire stories where the characters are being introduced to the notion of vampires for the first time. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's every every production of Dracula. It's like, and and all of us, she, it's like her blood has been drained. What's going on? And there's these two strange marks in her neck. And, you know, the audio, the whole audience is like, let's just say, you know, there's vampires and go after it. And, you know, of yeah. course, now, now we have stupid vampire movies where they're putting holy water in squirt guns. But... <laughs> Hey, I will not have any Lost Boys bashing on this podcast. <laughs> or, or any of the other movies where they put holy oh, water man. in squirt guns. It still makes sense. But, uh, but it's frustrating because, you know, I'm watching Carmilla and, you know, they're, they're sort of going through this whole vampire thing. It's like, well, okay, now we know she's a vampire. And they still take a really long time to get to the reveal mm-hmm. where Meg Tilly is a vampire and she can, like, teleport and stuff. Uh, there, I, have, I have two trains of thought on this, and frankly, mm-hmm. they both do not support your critique of it. Mm. Firstly, you know, you have to realize that every story takes place in some sort of abject reality, the reality mm. of this story and the reality of this story as it is in the real world is generally speaking, there are no vampires. I, if we I found, underst- I, I understand that. It's I just, think they're committed to the reality of the story yeah. and they would, you, it would take some convincing to mm. get people on board with vampires. But beyond that, let's just throw that out even because that's, that's an excuse. Mm. We were just talking about Howard Phillips Lovecraft, and one of the things that he did, one of his, the kind of the cornerstones of his storytelling style, uh, was the idea, and it's very it's very meta if you think about it, 
of the audience being ahead of the protagonist. It's really mm-hmm. important. That's the difference between surprise and suspense, if you will. Mm-hmm. Suspense, you know, a surprise is, oh no, uh, the building blew up. Mm-hmm. Suspense is, you know there's a bomb in the building mm-hmm. and it's going to go off in an hour, but you're watching for the next hour. That suspense, whatever. So here the suspense is, when are the people, are these poor bastards going to catch up to what I know? Because I'm watching mm-hmm. Nightmare Classics. Because yeah. I know the story of Carmilla. Mm-hmm. Um and it works better, I think, in a Lovecraftian setting because Lovecraft's protagonists were almost always intellectuals. They were professors and mm-hmm. historians and experts in their field. So the fact that they were missing something so obvious, mm-hmm. that they thought, well, I'm intelligent, I can explain away all these logical fallacies and all this magic, it's so- that makes them that, that makes the, the audience a little smarter and it's an odd sort of relationship with the author and the protagonist. Mm-hmm. You, you gotta love how cynical that guy was. Oh, yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter what you think or what you believe, you are meat for an uncaring universe. You just, you just don't know like, what you're talking about. Your intellect about. No will does. not save you, your religion will not save you, nothing. You're just, the universe doesn't care. These monsters, don't, they don't even see you as food. And when you have this story of people who don't believe, because like, you mm. know, they're dead bodies piling up and a doctor is saying, the plague, the plague has come to America. <laughs> and Roddy McDowell p- playing Van Helsing. <laughs> And by the way, I will never complain about Roddy McDowell in a movie. He's always wonderful in everything. But he's, always welcome. He's just he's cheesing it up. Mm. As this, he's basically the proto version of Anthony Hopkins's version of Van Helsing. Which if you've oh, seen, geez. if you've seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, aka Francis Ford Coppola's mm. Dracula, one of Anthony Hopkins' worst performances, worst slash best. No, because just worst. Over the top, and I think Roddy McDowell you know, is doing the same. thing. You know where he got his accent? Hmm. From Herbert Lom in the Pink Panther movies, <laughs> like that, 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 that was that what that was true? what he based his performance oh on. God, was Herbert Lom, and, and in fact, there I heard stories of like from the set where he would get into character by saying "Cluso, you fool, Cluso, you fool." <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, and I didn't know that. And that's, that's, that makes that movie even better for me. Oh God, I'm not gonna lie. It's like it's like when you find out that his Hannibal Lecter voice is based mm. on Catherine Hepburn, and you're just like, oh my God, I can't oh, unhear I, that. I now. kind of get it now. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I, oh my God, you're right. Um, so yeah, so this is this is okay. Like, I actually, again, I really like the mm. relationship Bionni Sky and Meg Tilly have. Meg Tilly, I think, is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and there's, mm. but there's this great well, sequence they, where she's like, she's leading Ioni Sky through like, the woods, and mm. there's this, there's a bit. I've never seen in a vampire movie. Like, I've never seen it. Where Meg Tilly bites on his guy, and it's very sensual, it's mm. on the neck. But Meg Tilly is upside down, and she's just floating upside down. And with her feet, like, at a 45-degree angle up in the air. Yeah, it's, it's almost like that scene in Spider-Man where he kisses MJ upside down. <laughs> but it's a vampire, and it's really kind of creepy and scary. I'm like, I, you know what? Kudos. It's a good, it's a good image. That's really creepy. That's a really, really great bit. I would, I would tell mm. anyone to enjoy that. Um... I think this one mostly works. I think there's some eccentricities mm. to it, but I think Meg Tilly is well, the, uh, a and, superstar. Yeah, well, and Ioni Sky, I think they play off each other very well because yeah. she's really good at playing that sort of wide-eyed innocent, you know, who's just sort of all smiles and everything's okay for her, and she mm. she's willing to wield that later in the story to protect her her essentially girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, that's great. I think it's. Uh, it never shies away from uh, the the homoerotic subtext, mm-hmm. um, which it easily could have given, you know, sort of the vibe and aesthetic it was going for. Good mm-hmm. for them. Uh, the next adaptation is The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This one stars Anthony Andrews mm-hmm. as Dr. Henry Jekyll. Uh, stars 
Laura Dern as the object of his affections, stars Rue McClanahan <laughs> as a madam. Wee! <laughs> <laughs> Boy, is that that one's that's a bit. Rue McClanahan was the uh, was the uh, what do you, what do you call it? Uh, the sexy one on Golden Girls, the one who is constantly <laughs> the one who is constantly fucking around in every episode. Is it Blanche. Uh, yeah, I think it was Blanche. Yeah, like it, it, so that's kind of funny, and she mm. she knows what that people will be kind of amused that she's in this, and she's fine mm. with it. Um, Denholm Elliott is in there somewhere, but I missed him. I must have blinked. I, th- I think uh, he. I think he's like under like some heavy facial hair or something. As someone's oh, okay. father, but so this is a pretty straightforward adaptation of Doctor Jekyll and Mister mm-hmm. Hyde. We we meet Doctor Jekyll. He has come up with uh, a serum that he thinks can help divide. Uh, the pu- the good impulses from mankind from the he, bad impulses. He, he, he feel he essentially he's isolated the gene for evil mm-hmm. in the human brain, and uh, everybody says, "Well, no, evil is a concept. That's not something that can be in your brain." But. And you know what's interesting? When I was a kid, and I was mm-hmm. hearing about Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and everyone talked about how fanciful the story is, I was like, "Oh yeah, you couldn't possibly like." modulate a chemical in the brain in order to change the way people think and make them more mentally healthy. Like, you couldn't possibly do that. Like, Dr. Jekyll was right. That's, that's just what they're talking about. He just found a, a, a medicine that made him worse and not better. It's just, it's just like the worst side now, effects you could possibly have on, like, an antipsychotic or something. You've, you've read Jekyll and Hyde, That right? one I've read, yes. Okay. Um, the original story, and I've never seen this in a film adaptation... Uh, other than where Jekyll and Hyde changed genders, mm-hmm. but it was Doctor Jekyll and Ms. Hyde? D- yeah, with with Tim Daly and Sean Young of all people. Um, <laughs> why do I remember that? Because uh, it was weird. It was, I sent yeah. you because I sent you the trailer. Oh, that's true. <laughs> and I watched the trailer. I've I've seen the movie though. Yeah, Jerry Piven is in that. Uh, but <laughs> Jekyll and Henry Jekyll and and um, Edward Hyde. Edward Hyde don't look alike. In fact, Hyde, I believe, is like. Like a foot and a half shorter. He's got mm. like long dark hair. He's got different facial features. Like yeah, it's a physical transformation. It's a physical transformation. I understand it's supposed to be the same body, but they're not recognizable as one another. And I've never seen a version of Jekyll and Hyde where they look so different that I think they're two different people. Well, they're always traditionally played by the same actor. Well, the, you can't play, play them by the same actor and then go mm. under a lot of makeup, uh, yeah. or you could do the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen thing where there's a lot of CGI oh, transformation. Well, he's just the Hulk in that one. But, I know. Uh, the comic plays it so much better. But, yeah, um, yeah. Edward Hyde is not this like little devious guy. He's the Hulk. Yeah. He's just the well, Hulk. No, but they talk about that, actually, if you've read... Mm. Did you read all of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? No, or? I saw the movie. Okay, the, the comics, mm. like, he's the Hulk. At the beginning of it, but later on he has a speech mm. about how when he was first created, he he was like the personification of all of uh, Henry Jekyll's mm. darker impulses. Yeah, but when he was first created, he was very small. Mm-hmm. He was a shorter man. Okay, and now and the more he let Edward Hyde out, the bigger Edward Hyde got, and the smaller Henry Jekyll got. Okay, that's, so, so, that's you the have, so you can have a, the Hulk. Yeah, you can have it both ways. <laughs> yeah. it, it works. I'm, I'm totally fine with it. But um, I, I would love to see a production where Jekyll and Hyde are actually played by two different actors, and the mystery is sort of maintained. Yeah, I will say this: uh, Anthony Andrews is an actor I wasn't terribly familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays again Doctor Henry Jekyll and uh, Edward Hyde. His performance transformation mm. is really quite uncanny. He's I, I, really playing totally different human beings. He's really great as Jekyll, mm-hmm. and he's having way too much fun as Hyde. Fair enough, but I do... <laughs> he's, he's, he, he reminded me of Dracula from... Bram Stoker's Dracula? No, from... Uh, 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 Dracula Dead and Loving It? 
No, the TV series we watched. Dracula the series. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of Dracula. You reminded me of that Dracula. There, Dracula's bit. like the, one of like the two most adapted yeah, works of like, literature in history. Like him and Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, like Tarzan coming up behind. Like, But like, yeah, I think oftentimes you see a movie or something where someone has a secret identity. And I understand the idea of Clark Kent is that he plays more like unassuming and maybe mm. he slouches. He seems like a klutz. And so you'd never believe he was Superman. But once you see Christopher Reeve in glasses and then Superman walks in the room and you don't recognize it, you someone looks like an idiot mm. here. Jekyll is really just callow mm. and so much so and so hiding everything he does every facial feature every emotion that when he just slicks his hair back his hide <laughs> and walks around with he, more confidence and a slightly different tone of voice with a swagger he, he just turns into Mick Jagger but if, if he was like a Mick Jagger meets Alex DeLarge like that's <laughs> who he is and you're just sort of like yeah, if I knew Henry Jekyll, I wouldn't recognize this guy. If someone mm. said, hey, doesn't he look like Henry Jekyll? I'd be like, yeah, a bit. Like, that's... I, it's a really good performance, I think. Mm. Um, it's a broad performance, but he's playing Jekyll and Hyde. He's <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Um, so, yeah, the idea is he becomes Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde does a bunch of horrible things, mm. some of which are in the book, some of which are not. Some, you know, there's a bit, in I think, in the book where he like would go to a brothel, but it was too rough and he wasn't allowed back anymore. Mm. Here, that is like a whole centerpiece bit. His misogyny in this adaptation is really interesting to me, and it's something mm. that not every adaptation focuses on. The idea that he feels weak around women, and now he is now free. he dominates women yeah. when he's in his evil mode. And it's a cynical but not unreasonable sort of parable about how shitty so many men are. And you know, It's a good point. I didn't catch up. Yeah, didn't like pick up think, on that. Think about all of these guys who like you know, talk about, like, oh yeah, I'm the nice guy. Why, mm. why don't women like the nice guys? And it's like, you know that there's an extreme undercurrent of misogyny in there. <laughs> where it's just like, you're, you're angry at an entire gender for mm. not noticing that you're nice. You're not nice. <laughs> you know, and, you're, and some people like need to just have that slapped into him a bit. Mm. And this is that adaptation of the story. The scene where he goes over to Laura Dern's house is right out of Funny Games. He just walks into the house and does horrible, violent things. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's genuinely scary. It's its played up, mm-hmm. but I think it's a legit, decent well, adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde. It, it's, it's nice that they don't romanticize his violence. And I think that's where sort of the maturity of this particular adaptation comes. Um, there are so many ways to do Jekyll and Hyde. There have been yeah. innumerable adaptations. Um, most of them like to focus on the horror aspects of it mm-hmm. in, in a violence capacity. Uh, just sort of show that he's cutting people. Uh, but there is also this way to sort of shy away from uh, like how subversive he's really being. Yeah. It's not just that he's committing acts of violence, it's that he's sort of breaking norms. Yeah. And uh, I think that was the vibe this adaptation was going for. Mm. And uh, If you act like the rules don't apply to you, the rules don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we see that Hyde is, is less like a violent murderer, although he is. He is. Uh, it's more that he's a sociopath. Yeah. And that's kind of the point of the story, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it had a, it had a real American Psycho vibe to it. Um this was one where uh, I, I found an article in the New York Times where they were talking about the production of this show because Shelley Duvall was seen mm. as a, a bit of a pioneer in cable programming for the various shows that she was producing. They were winning awards. 
Um, it was an interesting and illuminating article, one of which was that they were talking about what a success she was, and she was talking about how fairy tale theater wasn't making money. Hmm. Like, they were like, they were hoping to get profits in syndication and home video. But in actuality, like, it was an expensive show, and a lot of her, those big actors were working for scale or for nothing mm. because they were doing it for the kids. And it's one of the reasons why they had trouble finding big, big names for Nightmare Classics because it no longer feels like you're doing it for the kids. No longer feels like, oh, it's, it's, like it's like when you got Meg Ryan to play a villain on Captain Planet. Like she's just doing it so like your kids can have something to watch. But like, well, you're, uh, Cap- you're not so much. Captain Planet was a different deal because mm-hmm. Ted Turner was able to sell that as a PSA. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you needed to work some community service hours, you could actually take a role on Captain Planet and that would count. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. <laughs> so, so, but one bit of business I was able to unearth about the show was uh, that a lot of big names turned down the role of Henry Jekyll. They went hmm. to John Lithgow. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. They went to he, Sting. John who, Lithgow kind of did it in Raising Cain anyway. But yeah, yeah I mean, but it's good casting regardless. Mm. I think they had Sting uh, uh, possibly lined up. I forget who else. But like, it was interesting to see like the process. Oh, God, Sting. Sting would have been good. I think I, I think it'd be okay. As one or the other. I'm not sure if he could do both. I'd like, so. like to see him try. I'd lo- you know, I'd love to see Sting as like Dorian Gray. Oh, that's that would have been yeah, a good That's story. where they would have gotten yeah. to eventually. Mm. Bet. Um, okay, and then the last one, and, and this is this for me is the stinker out of the whole bunch. It, it's kind of forgettable, this last one, because yeah. they're, this is we're only on episode four, and they're clearly, A, reaching for a really obscure story. This is not a well-known tale at all. No. And B, one that feels like it's padded. Because, oh, it is. Because there's, oh, there's an intro and an outro that are unnecessary to the story. Are you, are you familiar with the story? No. No, not at all. It, it's actually really okay. So there's the original story. It's called The Eyes of the Panther. It's mm-hmm. by Ambrose Pierce. Um, and if if memory serves, I, I did like a, a brush up, but I didn't reread it again. I just looked mm-hmm. it up. But um, it's the story of a guy who wants to marry a girl and she rejects him. And he says, why? And she tells him the story about how uh, when her mother was pregnant with her, mm-hmm. she was attacked by a panther. And the panther was like outside the house staring at her. And she was so scared. That she had, uh, she had what would have been an older baby brother at the time, mm. um, and she held the baby so close that she suffocated it to death, and that's the circumstance under her birth, and she feels that she is cursed by it, that she is doomed to some sort of tragedy and insanity, and he is totally rejected, and then he goes home, and then he sees in the window a panther, and he shoots it, and then it turns out it was her. Mm. Now. The story is another one, like the innocence that can be taken literally or, or metaphorically. You can either just say, she, and she's a were-panther. Mm, okay. She literally turned into a panther. Or you can say to yourself, uh, that is him, that is a man lashing out at being rejected. And mm. he is taking that story as sort of an excuse to kill her. Because there really isn't any evidence. And they, they talk about her having sort of feline qualities, but it doesn't necessarily mean she's mm. a were-panther. She could just be this person who rejected him and now he sees her as a monster and he kills her. So it goes by the way. Either way, that's a short story. That's two (laughs) scenes, basically. So here we have a guy attacked in the woods by a panther who turns into Daphne Zuniga. Already you lost me. (laughs) I like Daphne Zuniga fine, but I, I don't get like tortured 
out of her vibe. She was good in Gross Anatomy. She's, she's good in The Sure Thing. She's great in Spaceballs, but tortured, not she, really she can be thing. Tough or sarcastic or yeah. or even innocent, but yeah, not not tortured. Tortured is a weird is a weird casting choice. Um, and then the dude winds up in the home of an old prospector, played by C. Thomas Howell, under a lot of makeup, a lot, a lot of really bad rubbery makeup. Yeah, and he tells a story about how. Uh, Daphne Zuniga basically the story I just told you about the, mm. the the woman who sees the panther suffocates the baby and then she gives birth to Daphne Zuniga the mom dies and the dad played by John Stockwell <laughs> from Christine uh, who would eventually go on to direct films like Deep wait was it Deep no not Deep Blue Sea Into the Blue and the various oh surf- golly I didn't even see Into the Blue Deep the Blue's not bad but yeah it's various that, that's, various that's, surfing thrillers <laughs> they, they directed multiple surfing uh, thrillers is, is Into the Blue the one with all of the midriffs or is it uh, well I mean, I, it doesn't I really mean, narrow it down Paul but, Walker and Jessica Alba who, yes. who they were just they just filmed their midsections for 90 minutes it was and that's basically kind of the reason that, Into the Blue is basically an updated somewhat sexier version of, of the, the Deep, deep yeah which yeah. honestly I'm fine with. I think the deep is a bit long in the tooth. But, like it's <laughs> well, a, it's, it's just it's kind a, of a slow movie. It's for obscure me. now. Nobody knows what the deep is anymore. Really? Oh, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's really watched. Much. I, I, I'm not a fan. But it's always disappointing to find out that a film has like gone into obscurity when you weren't looking. I, I I hear it like on trivia cards. That's kind of the only place where you hear about the deep anymore. Anyway, uh, John Stockwell has a young girl, and then he's forced to play the rest of the show in old age makeup, and uh, he's uh, uh, yeah, he just travels with Daphne Seeger from town to town because she's a werewolf. Panther. Mm-hmm. No, no, no plausible deniability here. She's just she, she turns into a panther. She, she's literally like in a general store where C. Thomas Howell works, and like someone walks by her, doesn't even have like a remark, doesn't even say anything mean, and just goes, hisses <laughs> <laughs> at them. And it's like I don't know if Daphne Sneak is playing that for horror as much as just cattiness. Like it's no pun intended. Um, she was just goofing around during rehearsal, and they left it in the final t- final cut. Anyway, C. Thomas Howell wants to marry her. She won't because she's a werepanther. Mm. Well, uh, the townsfolk well, get I mean, mad because. I mean, what would the children look like? The townsfolk get mad because she's a werepanther. They kill her mm. dad because she's a werepanther. Mm. See, Thomas Howell runs out with her, but the problem is she's a werepanther, and mm. eventually she runs out and does werepanther stuff, and it's pretty bad, and she dies. And now he's old, and, and she's back as a werepanther. And, he, we're, we're, and she's the same age. She hasn't yeah. aged. And then he, she's he, not even an old panther. And then at the end, he becomes a panther through the power of love? Uh, yeah, yeah. All of that stuff is added on. Like, they padded the hell out of this story. <laughs> so, it's, it's a, a, so basically, it's a campfire story that they turn into, like, an hour-long Film. Yeah, and it really feels it. Like it's mm. it's stodgy. Like the, the the cast is. I mean, their names. C. Thomas Howell mm. can be a good actor. Uh, uh, John Stockwell doesn't have much range, but he's fine. Daphne Zuniga is good, but she's miscast here. Like it's just everyone's. It's all the pieces are wrong. Hmm. The the script is trying too hard to make it like an epic tale of romance rather than a tragic horror story. It doesn't feel like a horror story at all. It feels more like Twilight. Um. And yeah, and most of the cast feels like they're they're out of their element. They're always playing the wrong age. Like it just feels like it wasn't a well put together mm-hmm. production for me. So this one really falls flat. What do you think? Yeah, um, I, I agree. Okay. I just uh, yeah, it it, 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 se- it seemed really aimless. It's like uh, I, I'm watching this and I'm wondering where like the 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 coda is going to come in. What's the climax of this story? What's going to be the the twist or the or the point or the underlying theme? And it's just. Scene after scene of you described it perfectly, and and she's a were panther, and that's the source of their problems. Yeah, how are you going to solve it? Well, they're not really. She's just still a were panther. 
they run away and that's kind of that. And, and you can now still, we get fast forward to the present. I mean, you could milk that. You can really get something out of mm. that. That's sort of there's something I actually haven't seen much, really. The idea of being in a long-term committed relationship with someone who is a monster. Mm. Like, literally, a monster. And you can talk about how that can be a metaphor for, you know, loving someone, being committed to them a whole life, but someone who has serious problems. Mm. That could, yeah. that could or, be anything or, from alcoholism or a, to a, whatever. Whatever, but whatever like, the dark secret is. You could use the yeah. monsterism as, you know, something in their past that they that has hurt them. Maybe they, yeah, maybe they have mental illness. Yeah. Maybe they have some sort of addiction. Whatever you want to use, there's a metaphor you can put into a monster story. And they just... Shy away. And they just yeah, there's don't nothing there, which is kind of surprising for a show that in the previous three episodes were able to deal with that subtext a little bit more gracefully and directly. Mm. Like they didn't; they just were not afraid of it. Mm. And here again, I think the material is is weak. This feels like the kind of a, a episode you whip out in the last season when you're running out of steam. Well, yeah, when you've run out of ideas for good horror stories, there were so again. Okay, you start Return of the Screw. Great, great, okay, great. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Carmilla, cool. Carmilla's uh, uh, fine. Jekyll and Hyde, you, good. You don't want to do too many really big ones first season, but that's a good one to you go don't with. Need to, you don't need to do Dracula, but you can do a uh, lesser-known Bram Stoker story. You could do The Vampire, the other one that was uh, written. Well, there you go. Uh, or, or Varney the Vampire. You yeah. know, a lot of these older vampire stories, those are also fine. Also Maybe, great. maybe you don't want too many vampire stories. Okay. Uh, uh, the ghoul. Um, that's a good one. The 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 story of the old woman who uh, slept with her her husband's corpse. There's um, no Poe here. I mean, you could do everything. Mm. You could do the black cat. You could oh, do the, pit and the pendulum. You could do a whole series of Poe. Yeah. Uh, again, you don't. Wanna, I think you do mm. one a season, but mm. like there's there's plenty to work mm. with. Um, I think there's some, and, then, think, and then you end the series with Dorian Gray or the season with Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray is good. I think there's a couple of Lovecrafts that you could do that would mm. fit without being like too difficult like some of them are like literally he's describing things that are indescribable but you could do like you could do like Pickman's model which has this oh there you go I love Pickman's model Pickman's model is like one of his most accessible stories if you've never read it like if it's where I tell people you want to like read a Lovecraft story you never have before Pickman's model it is direct it's got a great premise Mm -hmm. it's got a great hook like once you like get to the end of it, you're just like, oh, that's cool. That's a, that's a fun twist. That's a nice little. That's mm-hmm. nicely done. Like it just, it's like one of his better done in one bits. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really sweet. Um, yeah, there's there really isn't a shortage of material, uh, even in the public domain. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe there was less mm-hmm. than they had for fairy tale theater. Yeah, maybe so. That might be that might be another problem. With mm. it is because again, if you if you're trying to and the, the budget was pretty low, mm-hmm. the episodes were longer, uh, more complicated in some regards because there are more locations and things, different different eras. Um, it's it's a tricky production to put together, especially without a lot of support. Mm. And if you have to pay for the rights to the to the stories, it's going to only get worse from there. So I can picture someone saying, "Unless this gets really great ratings, we're not going to continue it." Mm. And it's a shame because even though I think at least one episode is a complete stinker, yeah. uh, I still like it. I still like the vibe. Um, I wish they'd had a little bit more freedom to be more distinctively cinematic and atmospheric. But I, I don't know. I, I still dug it. And in my head, I kept thinking about, God, what, what would I do? Yeah. If I was in charge, because I love horror anthologies. That's some. That's a recurring motif you can see throughout mm-hmm. Cancel Too Soon. Is how much Whitney and I love horror anthology shows, <laughs> and we we whip them out as often as we can without you know running through them all. Mm-hmm. But like we do at least one every couple of months because there's a lot out there, and they're always fun, and they're always like little gems. 
even bad shows. Yeah. And um yeah, this one this one has this like air of mild prestige about it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's missing. I think it's missing a a unifying factor which could have been a host. Just something that like a sense of continuity between not well, literal continuity, if, just like it feels like they're of a piece together. The, I the think only that's way, missing. The way you could have done that is first of all, don't make it a one hour show. Make this into movies. Make yeah. it a series of films. And if they were a series of films and they actually had, you know, put more money into it, strangely mm-hmm. enough, and put these into like big, these bigger two hour productions and you still put out one a month, this would still be going today. Possibly. This yeah. would have been like Masterpiece Theater. They just would have kept on rolling forward. They, people would have heard about sort of all of these movies that all of these famous people are getting involved with. Shelley Duvall's name is attached. Mm-hmm. So you're getting a lot of people in here. And now we have a hundred of these movies, all based on classic lit. You have Cliff's Notes for kids who don't want to read the books in school. Yeah. You have exciting renditions of stories that haven't been adapted elsewhere. Yes, it was canceled too soon, for sure. But I think they weren't ambitious enough. Yeah, I agree. I think if you had gone the feature route, mm. if, you'd, if these had been like even 80 minutes... You okay. know, like, let's say each one of them was double the length, okay? Mm-hmm. Maybe you make, like... Uh, t- double length, a two-hour yeah. TV time slot. Yeah. Two-hour TV time slot, but slightly shorter than a, than, a t- than many feature films. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you do, like, two or three fewer episodes a season in mm-hmm. order to justify that. You, do like, you just make them... Do, like, five or six a season. But, yeah, you make yeah. them prestige events. But what we also have is when you make them that much longer is... You can repackage them individually, and yeah, you can put perfect. them on video individually, even if the show isn't a hit. You've got a whole bunch of movies. Mm-hmm. And this was released on VHS. You can that That's available, so you can see them. Um, but yeah, it's mostly gone. Fairytale Theater isn't readily available anymore. This uh, is like this whole wonderful fairy- era of, of children's television programming. Well, Fairytale Theater gone. was released on VHS, but you know, unless you're resourceful, you're not going to be able to see them. In fact, uh, I was reading, apparently it's one of the first TV shows to be released on home video. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, I think it's probably mm. because they worked. They had great casts, and people would be enticed to watch them regardless. Mm. Robin Williams and the Frog Prince? Cool. <laughs> you know, it's only like half an hour, right? Mm. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Sounds great. I wanted to watch that. So, um, yeah, um, it's not, it's not as weird as some of the other anthology shows we've done. Like it's, it's no terror vision, which is just one of the most surreal experiences we've ever had. I've I've seen it. We've talked about it and I'm still not convinced it exists. I'm not either. Honestly, I'm still not, that's still an asterisk. Like I'm not entirely sure that's a real show, but this is, this is a real show. It's a kind of a classy show. Um, it, I would say like, because it's an anthology, you don't need to see all the episodes, um, if you can track it down, they're not too hard to find online. Uh, I would say definitely, I, I'd say definitely they're Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. This is just a solid, short Jekyll and Hyde uh, adaptation. And I think Turn of the Screw is okay, but I think the other hit for me is Carmilla. Mm. Just because, for whatever flaws it has in the narrative, Meg Tilly and Ioni Sky and that subtext just pop. <laughs> and it really works. And Perfect. again, they're pretty yeah. short. You can get through it in 45 minutes. Mm. It's, it's, it's nice. Um, any last thoughts on Nightmare Classics? Uh, no, I, th- I mean, the, there were only the four, so it's kind mm-hmm. of hard to, to really... I mean, if you want to talk about where it would have gone in 100 episodes, we kind of I mean, already touched on that. We yeah, have. Just they just would have gone through kept, all the other... Kept gone through, going through all the stories. Would they have... Here's the thing. These are all based on like public domain stories. These are all based on 19th century, maybe early 20th century stories. Would they have had to stay in the 19th century? And would they have succumbed to the 19th century story set in modern day? 
oh, at I some point. Not. I mean, they already they already switched one from Europe to America. So yeah. That, 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 it's not unreasonable. Would they have though. gone to something like I got like Steven Spielberg's Duel was based on a short story from the seventies. Uh, if they could get the rights to like a more modern short story, would they have done Stephen King for it? Probably not Stephen King. He was way too high profile. But well, I think I think I think it's in the title though. It needs mm. to be a classic in some regard. Okay. You could just pick a short story, mm. but like it needs to have some clout. It needs to have some. It needs to be from at the very least an author of note. Okay. Um. So you know maybe you could do something by Robert Block or something. But mm. like yeah. But again, the issue is can you get the rights to it because then it starts getting expensive. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think the 19th century is a good place for it because mm. the horror genre obviously predates the 19th century, but it started to boom in the 19th well, century. Well, that's when the novel took off, sort of. Yeah. That was the age of the novel. And it started to become a more respectable genre as mm. well, and we started to see a lot of different people play with the medium. And then in the early uh, part of the 20th century, we started to get that pulp boom mm. um, where... You know, people a lot like more sensationalistic yeah. and lower, lower or maybe equal print runs, but based on cheaper materials. Mm-hmm. People are just e- eating these things up for quick entertainment rather yeah. than lit. And you could get someone like mm. Robert E. Howard becoming famous for telling a story about a barbarian, mm. and repeatedly so. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not knocking it in the slightest. My point is that that would have been a tough sell fifty years before that. It was okay. a good era, and you could put out a lot of pulpy stuff. I think it would have been interesting if they'd been able to maybe pick up on some of the comics that weren't covered by Tales from the Crypt. Like, mm. those could be classic stories, for example, theoretically. Yeah. Um, but, but again, those we're not. That's those aren't classics. Those are modern 20th century pulp, again, pulp entertainment. Well, but again, this, it was like 30 years ago. You could make mm. the argument that where's the cutoff? That's the question. Is Where's the cutoff? Is the cutoff uh, 1950, 1905? 1905. Well, that's we're not the gonna cutoff. Get, we're not going to get any Lovecraft. Yeah. And so. no, Lovecraft was around that time. Yeah, right? but he, but he, I guess he, he was, was more like 20s. Regardless, he hadn't hit his stride until later in his career. So you're going to be stuck with some of his weaker material. Material. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would say you I would want to cut it off around like World War Two. I think okay. I think World that, that War Two. I think well because I think before that there are like some interesting people working mm-hmm. in in the medium, but you're not gonna necessarily mm-hmm. um, not all of them are, are as mm-hmm. popular. Yeah. So um, I'm wondering if they would ever get to like ancient horror literature. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Or even a horror from another culture. I mean, right now uh-huh. it's very... We were looking at uh, stories that are very British or American. Mm-hmm. W- w- there's got to be horror stories in Russia or Japan. Or there's, yeah, there's a ton. Yeah. Or, or, and here's where you start to sort of skirt the line, because these are based on very clear works of literature with clear authors. Do yeah. you start going into like folk tales based on sort of anonymous authors or just things that are passed around well, within a culture. They already had that for and, their Tall Tales one. Tall Tales, for example. But would they have done like the horror version of that where they have like, you know, people bending rent into pieces in the woods and, you know. Well, I think, I think one story I probably would have included in Nightmare Classics is Bluebeard, for example. Okay. But, um, but you'll notice like uh, the Tall Tales, they did, they did a Sleepy Hollow episode. Okay. That was in Tall Tales. I would have reserved that for Nightmare Classics because that's a great <laughs> that's a great story to do. Like, mm. It's a good made for TV version of Sleepy Hollow starring Jeff Goldblum as Ichabod Crane from like 1983 or something. Yeah. Um, and it, it's fine. It's a good adaptation. I like that. Mm. I like that version quite a bit actually. Um, yeah. And then and then you can easily do a Christmas episode. Just do Dickens. <laughs> that's all you need. <laughs> I mean, just just play it creepier than usual. Just, yeah, just but, yeah. focus on the ghosts. I mean, but Dickens you know, did other horror gr- stories you know as well. Didn't he do that like train thing, like the Spotlight Man or something like that? He, he did. So, he actually did a lot of variants on A Christmas Carol. Like, there's mm-hmm. a, a good Halloween story that is the exact same premise. 
but we don't get to like the Scrooge type character is just some crotchety old guy who works in a cemetery. We don't get to know him at all. Uh-huh. And he stumbles into a grave and there's goblins down there and it shows him, you know, his past, his present, his future. And he feels like a better man after at the end of it. Exact same premise. <laughs> just it's goblins <laughs> instead of ghosts. And it's just some guy instead of Ebenezer Scrooge. That's funny. Uh, so yeah, the, the, and he also did uh, an, an Dickens did an anthology called The Haunted House. Where oh, yeah. There's more Haunted House stories, so they they could have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, Nightmare Classics. Uh, if you loved Shirley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater, if you have a lot of uh, fond memories of it, Nightmare Classics is worth tracking down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably not going to blow your mind, but it will scratch an itch and it might show you something that you missed initially, and you're just going to be like, oh yeah, that was that was the eighties. <laughs> that, Neat. They tried to do some classy crap in the eighties. It wasn't all, you know, it wasn't all the goonies. Ju- just big pop entertainments. Um, but yeah, it was fun. Mm. Uh, next week on Cancel Too Soon, we're going to be doing a show we've had a ton of requests for, like a <laughs> lot, like from the beginning. It's one of our, uh, it's one of our most common ones. Finally getting around to it. It's the failed nineteen ninety one reboot of Dark Shadows. <laughs> Dark Shadows is a daytime soap opera that, unlike other daytime soap operas, took place in a gothic castle, and they eventually uh, introduced vampires and other monsters into it. The va- uh, people know it for the vampires, but the vampire didn't show up till over a hundred episodes into that yeah, thing. So yeah. um, it was it was a daily show. They had one of the most grueling shooting schedules of all time. Mm-hmm. They had no money whatsoever. Yep, their sets were pretty much just cardboard walls that they threw up in like two minutes. Yep. And a lot of fans of the original Dark Shadows love it because of how cheap it is. Yeah. And if you're really, if you have a sharp eye, you can see things crew left on the set. You can see the the tape marks on the floor. They were just not careful at all. But it's a cult favorite because but, there was nothing. Yeah. There was nothing else like it at the time. Mm. Uh, it's not a whole hell of a lot like it now. Um, and um, yeah, it's it was it's a hoot. I've seen quite a. Not, a, not the majority of it, but I've, I've seen, seen quite a few episodes of the original. A, I've seen some. Yeah, I've seen enough episodes of the original that I feel like I got the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people may have seen the Tim Burton movie, which you and I like more than most. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you and I like, and no one else does. There's, there's a few, but yeah. very few. And uh, yeah, there was a 1991 version uh, with a, 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 a fucking awesome cast. You got Joanna Going, you got Barbara Steele, you got like, like Gene Simmons was in it. Not the one from Kiss, the one from Guys and Dolls. Like, that's a good cast. Like, I, I've never seen it, this new, this particular version. However, if you want to join in, you want to watch this show with us, every episode, all 12 of the reboot of Dark Shadows is available on Hulu. So if you have a Hulu account, you, you can just, you can watch that with us and you can be all set for next week's show. Um... Yeah. yeah. Letters? Let's do some letters. Let's do some letters. Yeah, if you want to email the show, you can write us at canceledtosoon at gmail.com. Remember, that's always canceled with one L. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's one that comes from Graham. Hi, Graham. Hi. Hey, Bibbs and Whitney. My name is Graham. I'm a big fan of all your podcasts from Ireland. Well, our uh, podcasts aren't from Ireland. Uh, oh, no, there was wait. that one episode. <laughs> Graham is from Ireland. Okay. Greetings, Ireland. Hi, Erin Gorbrog. Uh, I was f- wondering if you'd ever seen, uh, if you would ever do the Thundercats remake oh, from yeah. 2011. Wasn't there a, a Thundercats remake before that as well? 
Didn't they try to reboot Thundercats? A I feel like times? I feel like I feel like it's like He Man. It's one they keep trying to reboot yeah. over and over and a over series again. that I found so brilliant and nuanced, but for some reason it was canceled after only one season. I'd love your thoughts and opinions on shows why Thundercats and He Man can't find modern day footing, while the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reinvent themselves every couple of years and continue to go strong. I love every iteration of TMNT except the next mutation. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Cheers oh. and remember the Mystic Knights of Tirnanog is pronounced Tirnanog. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> Cheers, um, Graham. Well, we're going to get to TMNT, the next mutation, at mm. some point as well. Uh, Thundercats. Thundercats is a show I watched as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about a group of cat people who end up on an alien island full of well, monsters, and they, they fight those monsters. They, like Superman, they have to leave their home planet. Uh, and they yeah. and they get sidetracked and land on a planet that appears to be uninhabited, but has, like, critter, like evil Monsters cr- and demons. Monsters and demons yeah. lurking in the shadows. Um Sometimes you rewatch an old show you liked when you were a kid, and you go like, "Oh, that's fun." Mm-hmm. Sometimes you watch Thundercats. Uh, I tried. <laughs> I tried rewatching. I haven't gone back. I tried rewatching Thundercats like a year or two ago, mm-hmm. and um, I could not get through it. It's oh. such. A, it's one of the, show, the 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 opening credits promises you so much because it's such good animation and it looks really <laughs> exciting. And then you watch the show, and first off, the animation takes an immediate dip in quality. The second, the actual show starts. But it's just it's the thing is a lot of those eighty shows that were designed specifically to sell toys. Story and character is an afterthought, and oh, a lot of the distant afterthought, and a lot of the reason we still care about it now. Something like He Man, for mm-hmm. example, is because of our affection, not for the show necessarily, but for the time. For the and feelings it gave us as a kid. Yeah, we yeah. were a kid. Our standards were low. It was exciting and colorful. And then it was over. And then we played with our toys. And that's the stuff we remember probably best most right. of the time. So, as for Ninja Turtles, I think the premise was so bizarre and unique. Mm-hmm. Like, He Man was just a Conan knockoff. Thundercats, yeah, well, I guess Thundercats was a little bizarre. I can't think of too many things. With you know cat people on an alien planet, yeah, but it it did bear that sort of typical Look, fantasy tropes because there was a magical sword and mm-hmm. an evil transforming mummy demon. There and- was a lot of animated shows about uh, themed teams of superheroes, mm-hmm. everything from the Transformers to the Dino Saucers. Thundercats was all part of that. Like mm-hmm. they're not cars, they're cats. Cool. Mm. It's fine. But Ninja Turtles, you know, name me something that preceded Ninja Turtles that's like Ninja Turtles. That was the thing everybody was trying to imitate. Yeah. Uh, And I think because it's so strange and because it's so lively, and I think because it's set in a modern city, Mm -hmm. that you can continue to update it. Well, I think it's also the thing about saves Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because He-Man is about about princes and Mm. wizards and Thundercats. It's about cat people and aliens. The Ninja Ninja Turtles, A, it takes place in like the real world, but there are these mutants in it. Yeah. Uh, but also, the protagonists aren't lofty. They're teenagers. They're, <laughs> they're a little immature, and they're always in this sort of battle between wanting to just hang out and do the kind of stuff that people in their target demographic wants to do, and hang, being forced... Hang out and eat pizza. And, and, and being forced to save the day, because mm. it's the right thing to do. And that's something that, that tracks... Yeah, that that's something you can every that that never gets old. There's never a generation that's going to grow out of that. You know, the fair, the fair, state yeah. of adolescence is knowing you're on the cusp of growing up, knowing you have to do grown up things, but still defiantly mm. trying to be immature. That's part <laughs> of life. So I think the Teenage Mutant Turtles last longer than Thundercats because there's nothing really human about the Thundercats. There's nothing really. There's no connective tissue with the Thundercats. Yeah. It's just this big epic, lofty fairy tale fantasy type of show. Yeah, the, the 
the only fun human character in Thundercats was their their pet Snarf because it was it, and everybody hates Snarf and no one likes it, it was an annoying thing no one likes Snarf uh, but yeah the, the the Ninja Turtles are just kids yeah yeah that's an excellent point yeah um, here is a very long letter oh dear wow from, from Luke that is so, a long letter. Uh, from Luke, to save you the trouble of scrolling all the way to the bottom and then back up. I did that anyway. Uh, (laughs) Hello, my fellow pop culture junkies. Because of my very mild OCD and not wanting to mention something someone else may have emailed about, I waited until I was caught up on all of your episodes before emailing. Okay. So you caught up in MediaSRS and you caught up with us. Uh, I first heard about your podcast many months ago when Whitney was on The Canon. So it was up my alley. Uh, at the time, and any time I describe it to my friends, they just nod and say how it was tailor-made for me. When That's, w- you're our target demo. Like, <laughs> we're well, we're not th- for everyone. We're for the people who think mm. this is neat. Yeah, and that's a th- great group of people th- to be a part of. Thanks for listening to the canon. I'm glad I could, could take part in that. The canon, sadly, is no more. But mm. uh, I'm, I'm glad I got to take part in that. And I'm glad it, we, you found me. Uh, when I was younger, I was born in 1978. I watched things like Blackjack Savage, Man and Machine, and Earth 2 when they aired. Nice. Uh, every Sunday, I would grab the TV section of the newspaper and sit down with a highlighter so I could plan out my week. I had stacks of meticulously organized blank VHS tapes to use for specific shows or channels. In summary, your podcast is my jam. (laughs) Uh, Even though I could drop a comment on nearly every episode you guys have done, I'm not a complete lunatic, so here are some random notes. Great. The Dresden Files. I enjoyed it a lot when it aired, but I haven't gone back. I do recall that a key reason it was canceled was because, even though it got great ratings, it wasn't for the demographics they were going for. At the time, it sounded insane to me, but now I understand more about the business and it sadly makes sense. And that happens a lot when they try to, to air something that's for a more mature audience in an immature time slot or vice versa. It yeah. Just, the, like, the show will crash there, no matter how good it is. There's, there's shows that like are get really, really good ratings, but it's just not what the network is trying to do. For example, mm. The Twilight Zone, which I believe was on CBS. Mm. Uh, CBS was, uh, when The Twilight Zone was on in the 60s, was trying to outline itself as more of a wholesome network. But here was they had the darkest show on television. Mm. And there are stories and like biographies of Rod Sterling of the network constantly trying to sabotage The Twilight Zone. Like, <laughs> we're, we're winning awards... But we don't like that it's our figure, like it's our flagship show because it's mm. costing us marketing money. Yeah. People don't want people want to be associated with the wholesome stuff that we do, so they wanted to destroy their biggest hit. Yeah. It's ironic. Yeah, I uh, I ran into one of the producers of uh, Freakazoid at one point. Yeah. They, they came into I was just my retail business wearing the Freakazoid jacket. I was like, I love that show. It's my favorite show. What happened? Why did that thing get canceled? It's like, well. We can't sell to- we can't sell toys during that show. That's a weird show for stoner college kids, and they're watching it and they're not going out and buying Mattel toys. It's yeah. just a bad, the wrong demographic. So, however great it was, we had the audience, but they weren't we weren't selling enough. Green Lantern, the animated series, which we're going to get to at some mm. point in the future, was the same way. The show was a hit. Mm. The movie was such a bomb that no one wanted Green Lantern toys, oh, so they go. didn't want to keep making the show. From that movie. Fucking movie, man. Uh, the Persuaders. Uh, you mentioned the always great shoot him, he's the imposter cliche. There was an animated series called Stroker and Hoop, 13 episodes. I know Stroker and Hoop. I uh, where this scene takes place. To resolve the issue, the person with the gun just shoots both people in the leg so that neither can run away while they figure out which one is the real one. That's smart. I don't know why people aren't shot or stabbed in the knees more often in movies and okay. on TV shows. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say right now, mm-hmm. if there's any chance that they're that they're not the evil twin, mm-hmm. don't shoot him in the knee. Shoot well, him in the, not, not, him in the, the calf the through or the something. meaty part of their thigh. Yeah, yeah. That, that, mm. and even that's going to hurt like a son of a bitch. But look, I, yeah. as someone who has had 
a catastrophic knee injury yeah. in, in in their life, that's permanent damage. You're, that's yeah. it's well, really every and every time I see someone like in a car accident in a movie now, mm-hmm. I just think to myself, well, they're going to oh, need knee surgery, poor knees, yeah. yeah, like something, like they're going to be fine. I actually like like like, like Batman fighting the Joker, and that's like, oh, I can't kill you, ha ha, you can't kill me. I'm going to go on and create chaos. Well, you could remove his eyes. You, you could ho- you could realize that's not really you could a saw his feet off. There's ways to stop him without killing him. That's not really it's not really Batman. Well, he just invents a bat saw and he can take off the Joker's feet, take off his hands and feet, and he's not as big a threat anymore, that's, is that's, he? That's your problem. You don't have a bat. You saw. don't have a bat bone saw to take off the Joker's hands and feet. Please move on with the email. Which Maybe I'm about. too pragmatic. <laughs> yeah, that's your problem. Uh, A note on Herbie. Quote, and one of them has Herbie. Sounds like an STD issue. I also like the goofy OG Scarlet Spider costume. (laughs) I guess I mentioned that I like the OG Scarlet Spider costume. I I like it fine. Uh, Kindred the Embraced. How dare you serves not mention that Sasha is played by the incomparable, incredible, beautiful Bridget Brana. Yes, I'm aiming for Goofy, but I was really surprised that you didn't mention her. Uh, that, that happens every episode. Uh, sometimes people forget write to mention some famous star. Yeah. When, whenever you're watching like a video review of something like that mm-hmm. and someone's just like, oh, yeah, and this actor and it's like. Uh, I like that actor. That's a good actor. You yeah, want to hear? It's an important actor to me. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and and maybe an important actor overall. Mm-hmm. It's easy to overlook yeah, everything. Right. It's hard. It's hard to cover every detail and still feel like kind of fresh mm-hmm. and spontaneous. We could just give you facts. I saw a retrospective on the movie Strange Brew recently, and uh, they didn't once mention that it's the Hamlet story. It's like they're focusing <laughs> on other details. Like that's, but that's the Hamlet story. You think yeah, anyway. it gets mentioned? Uh, anyway. uh, Total Recall. Uh, very few shows slash movies with realistic androids, robots, actually address the purpose or reason why it's a good thing to create them to be so indistinguishable from humans. It's inherently a stupid idea to make them uh, able to perfectly blend in society, creative, mass- creating massive legal issues. It's true. Yes, if you're gonna make if you're gonna make a robot, make them all like bright blue or have big lights on their or heads have, or something. Or have yeah, four arms or something. Make them look like robots. No head. Uh, something. Almost human. Uh, the out of order thing drove me nuts as I watched it as it airs, only because of a wildly fluctuating relationship dynamic. They were aired out of order. Yeah. Uh, drifting a little back to antagonistic is one thing, but when one episode would end with a friendly but still snarky banter, and the next would start with outright "I hate robots," and it got very distracting. Yeah, I, I, Fox does that mm. so fucking much. Like yeah, that's yeah. what happened with Firefly as well. Like they aired they, out of order. They aired it out of order, and there was a there were like pro- six of those, right? No, there was like ten. There was All like right. ten, and the like, couple of they didn't air that end up on the DVD, but mm-hmm. like, you know, they they aired the pilot last. <laughs> like, oh, that's weird. All right. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things. Like, it was all designed to like have character development. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that you know, Mutant Enemy did was they had these ongoing genre shows with ongoing character development, and you air them out of order, and the character development mm-hmm. is just confusing. Uh, they're they're trying to emulate the summer experience. You missed a couple, so you're going to catch up. I don't know. I got nothing. Uh, yeah, right. Doesn't work. Uh, there were some shows where it was much worse, like Chaos and Enlisted, two more one-seasoners I enjoyed. Both included episodes where suddenly a character is in a relationship, and then the very next episode, they're contemplating asking out the person they just appeared to be in a relationship with for the first time. Oh, I remember uh, the uh, one show we, we keep meaning to get to, and we totally will, because I, I loved it when it came out. I'm curious to revisit it. was the 1990s version of American Gothic. Mm. Which was a kind of a creepy Twin Peaks kind of uh, knockoff where the sheriff of the 
this small town was basically the devil. Mm. Um, but there's a character who was set up in like the beginning of this of the show. As I think it was a teacher, a psychologist, or something, and he was like the the sheriff's main foe. Mm. Halfway through the season, the protagonist gets like thrown in a mental institution and that's it for him and it's mm-hmm. all like a big red herring but they aired him out of order so like they threw him in the mental institution and then the next episode he's back and he's they don't out. talk about it well, and then it? he's back in the mental institution again and it's just like dude nothing was as bad as Earth 2 where somebody like characters die and then they come back in the next episode yeah, or, yeah fucking anyway, um, oh. uh, you mentioned cops C-O-P-S ah, yes. fighting crime in a future time and I had the theme song stuck in my head for the rest of the day you're welcome yeah <laughs> Great theme song. Uh, Baywatch Nights. I know you can't review it because it has two seasons, but it's a fun thing to think about. Season one is a straight detective show. Season two is a supernatural thriller. It's probably due to the, a combination of working in the sun all day and lack of sleep from having two long shift jobs. Mitch actually started to go insane, and season two is just his fever dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to yeah. learn more about Baywatch and Baywatch Nights, you got to check out Obscurus Lupa's work. She's oh, been doing she them episode ba- by Baywatching, episode. Yeah. She's been doing Baywatch episode by episode for years mm. now, and it's always a treat. It's mm. always funny. And, you, <laughs> and she's finally at the point where she's doing Baywatch Nights now as well. And it's oh, great. It's funny. really fun to watch. Uh, the Edge. Oh, this is one of my holy grails. Yeah, you were I really want to do The Edge. Um, it was available on DVD for, I'm guessing, a very short time through Julie Brown's website only. Ah. It's not there anymore, but I do have a copy. <gasps> I'm going to find where you live. <laughs> uh, it's packaged as something like... a polite like, postcard. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm going to ask very nicely to borrow it. Um, the it, it was packaged as something like The Edge featuring Julie Brown for some reason. And uh, it was a decent transfer at best. Unfortunately, I just moved and my DVDs <laughs> are in storage. Otherwise, I'd be more willing to lend them to you. So if someone else doesn't get it to you first, you'll certainly hear from me again once I find my copy. If you oh, ever, please, I need to see The Edge If you again. ever find it, please let us know. I, I, yeah. You can find clips of it on YouTube, but there's not even like one whole episode anywhere. Yeah, it's one of those ones yeah. that's just... Like, like some of them ske- are- Fox sketch comedy show from 1993. It had Julie Brown, Jennifer Anderson, Wayne Knight, Tom Kenny, other notable uh, comedians as well. Bizarre. And every episode started with the entire cast gathering in a, a room together to greet the live audience and introduce the show. And then they would all be killed in some horrible way. Yeah. There's, we're at this weird stage where there's so much like TV and film material out there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's weirdly hard to find. Like, like everyone says, we... you can you can get anything. Well, no, you can't. Netflix mm. sucks. Netflix uh, is really limited. They're not an archive uh, yeah. by any stretch. Netflix, Hulu, they're mm. all really limited. Amazon's better than most, but even then, they have weird gaps. And mm. then it's just like there's there's like even like the stuff that you'd think would be like weird culty stuff. Like I can find mm. I don't know Tucker's Witch. <laughs> which never had a proper release. But we were able to track a copy of that down. We're going to do that at some yeah. point. Um, but a show that is like genuinely notorious and is a title that people are familiar with, like The Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer, mm. which you'd think would be on YouTube or something. Or anything from the UPN, for that matter. Yeah, it, That's it, a whole network where the content is just gone. Yeah, there's like there's few... not a There's not a famous UPN show anywhere to be found on like Hulu or... Well, there are no famous UPN shows other than Star Trek Voyager, but... Well, there's there's a few that were culty, that were culty enough to get their own, you know, DVD mm-hmm. release, like Nowhere Man or, oh, well, yeah, or Haunted, so. but like... And I think Veronica Mars ended up on UPN or... But, no, Veronica uh, started UPN and went to the CW. Went to CW. That was yeah. a great show. And so that was a UPN show. It was legitimately great. But like... Mm-hmm. And Buffy ended up going from WB w- to, to UPN. To, well, no, to... S- 
to no, CW. No, to UPN. Oh, is UPN it was briefly? Just before. It was just oh, before because okay, like okay. WB was done just with it. Just before and UPN it collapsed into it. the UPN. Yeah. Yeah. The WB and UPN sort of mashed into each other and formed the CW. Yeah. But yeah, these were not old shows. Some of them had big audiences. Find them. Yeah. Where, They're hard where to are find. these things? They're and, hard yeah. to find a lot of these shows. And some yeah. of the ones that are available, you're just like, why is that available? And that mm. isn't. Like, I don't. Why, why is Nightmare Classics. Not on DVD or not on streaming properly somewhere, mm. but I can find this piece of crap. Like, why? Why <laughs> is that? It's so weird to me. Yeah. I, I I thought when we hit like streaming services, we'd be in this golden age where just like fuck it, put literally everything up there. If people mm. don't care about it, don't put it on like a don't do a new transfer. Just a, a vast public archive yeah. of everything. Just just scan the VHS and put it out there. If no, if anyone, if we people ask, we'll do a new one. But mm. like. Just put it out there. Why not? Where Where's Family Dog? Yeah. Where's, you know, the, the, Literally, put where, everything out there. And when you have one thing that we're running into is that all these companies fail and got bought by new companies. There's a lot of movies and TV shows out there. No one knows who owns them. Mm-hmm. But they'd like to put them out. They just don't know legally if they can. Here's what you do. You put it out and wait to see who sues you. <laughs> I think there should be a rule that, like, if, you know, you should, you should put out, like, a list of things that, like, no one knows who they own. Mm-hmm. And if no one claims, has a legit legal claim to them, and no one can find them, and, like, no one comes forward in, like, two years. Okay. Then they're public domain. Fair. Fair. Yeah. Fair, fair. You know, like, um, no, no one wants to claim Desmond Pfeiffer? Fuck it. Everyone can have fine. it. Fine. It's, it's, it belongs to the people now. Yeah. Um, that Disney, was, you're not proud of Hunch Lights of Blackjack Savage? Fuck it. The, that was a big issue we had booking midnight shows at uh, the New Art, where I used to work. Uh, yeah. Is we would want to book something that was kind of notorious uh, or, you know, would definitely get a big audience. But we not only – it was either too expensive. We knew who had the rights or – we didn't know who had the rights to yeah. a lot of these old, older cult, like fa- not even cult movies, famous movies. Uh, one that we w- were trying to get on the big screen for the longest time, and we still can't get, no movie theater can, is uh, the 1986 animated Transformers feature film. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a crap film, but it has a big cult audience, uh, has a, a great soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So you got the touch over and over again. It's got Weird Al in it. Dare to be stupid. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of people are very fond of that movie, and we knew if we booked it as a midnight show, we could fill the theater. Uh, we didn't know who had it. And the we, we could get a print. We knew collectors who had prints of it. But you need to but be able you need to, to be cut able to, in. to cut in the studio who owns it. We didn't know who owned it, and like Shout said, Factory ended up like releasing that on like home video, but that's not the same as theatrical distribution. No, it's a little different. It's a, and, you, different people get paid, and. Yeah. Uh, I, I kept suggesting just book it, put it on the calendar, and see who comes out of the woodwork. The same thing we wanted to do with Deep Throat. Oh, yeah. Who gets the money for Deep Throat now? Just the mob now. Even, I don't know who gets. Even it at, this at the point. time, no one knew who yeah, got the money. Yeah, so for nobody, Deep nobody knows who got the money for Deep Throat. Nobody who knows who gets it anymore. So I figured just put it on there and see who tries to break your kneecaps, and then they'll say, yeah, "This just, is our only way to go, of getting it in touch with you." Just don't spend the money you make, and just like, oh, okay, here's your money. Yeah, just in case. Now we know. Can we do business in future? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a great plan, but it's what we've got. It's it's something that would work in this scenario. <laughs> Somebody who doesn't know anything. Anyway, there's a little bit more here. Okay, uh, a few suggestions. Uh, the gates, gated community full yes. of supernatural creatures, that for some reason hires an outsider to be the new sh- sheriff slash head of security, and everyone has to try and keep him in the dark about all the weird stuff he's been investigating. Uh, featured then known Ronamitra and future uh, no, future knowns Frank Grillo and Colton Haynes. 
really creeper overlay of, of sexualized camera pan up the bare back of what is supposed to be a 14 to 15 year old girl played by a 16 year old girl as she's getting dressed in the morning at the start of the second or third episode. Ah, Weird. good creepy show. Yeah. Uh, Sable based on a comic book. That one I do want to do. All right. I definitely want to do that one. I was very aware of the comic, but I had never read it. But by, by sheer coincidence, came across the existence of this show when I wondered randomly, what was Renee Russo's first acting role? <laughs> Six episodes. Should be an easy watch if you find it. Um, Super Mercenary by Night, children's book author by day. And one last random thing. In having critical discussions about pop culture these days, I think it's getting more and more important to point out that there's a difference between good and favorite. I try to mention often on my own podcast, which I'm simply naming because I'm trying to interact with you guys as a fan, uh, not trying to get a bump, uh-huh. uh, whether or not something is good is objective, whether or not something is someone's favorite is subjective. That's why it's not okay to say the Star Wars prequels are actually really good, but perfectly acceptable to say, I don't know why, I just like the prequels. Or if you're a good critic, you can say exactly why mm-hmm. um not that you guys have this problem it's just a podcast taking a critical look at tv gives you a platform to occasionally mention this sorry for the length but as stated this stuff is my jam so i had a lot to say and i'm happy i found you guys luke well thank you for writing us and mm-hmm. it's our jam too uh, regarding that last comment that's something that comes up quite a bit in mm-hmm. contemporary critical discourse uh the idea of is it good or do you merely like it and mm-hmm. a good example of this is a movie that's coming out this weekend venom mm-hmm. which i think you can if you, you you saw it, right? I, I was sitting next to you, dude. Okay, yeah, I'm not... I'm, <laughs> I was in the room with I you. I was busy. There was a venom. Mm. Anyway, but, like, it's, it's, it's kind of, like, it's a mess. The editing is mm. bad. The writing isn't really great. But it's still fun to watch. Yeah. My... For me, I think there's a hazy middle area, though. Because mm. if you have any sort of refined sense of taste, which you develop over time, uh-huh. um, your favorite film... You don't have to dismiss it by just saying you like it. You should be able to explain why you like it. Mm-hmm. And that might not be a reason why everyone would like it. But I think the idea that there's objective good mm-hmm. is in regards to art is a dangerous notion because yeah. it shuts down argument. Well, I think it, it, I think there's quantifiable good. You can point to things and say mm-hmm. this this stuff works or this stuff doesn't work and once it's been pointed out people will have to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. I, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to like it and if you like it it counts. I think a lot of the modern discourse that you're referring to, Luke, it, uh, has a lot to do with the rise of rotten tomatoes specifically. Uh, because Rotten Tomatoes was able to compile opinions into one place, balance the positive and the negative, and give a score to a piece of art, which meant that people were started looking at those scores and reading them the wrong way. Yeah, and this isn't and like a normal not, movie review where mm. like a lot of outlets ask you to put like a letter rating or something like that. Mm. It's like, this is, oh no, everyone yeah, says so this. By so compiling like, this, there became this sort of, yeah, a, a sort of fake truth about a movie. Like, well, you know, The Avengers is 92%. That means... If you don't like it, 92% of the world is against you. No, it just means 92% of critics gave it a pass. Yeah, it doesn't mean they and loved it. And it just 8% means they of critics overall didn't. said it was okay. Yeah, and uh, it, it completely gets rid of all nuance. It gets rid mm-hmm. of explanation. It gets rid of the written word. You know, the review is just sort of gone now. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people started taking these numbers and using them as a numbers game. And and even using them to sort of pit different, completely different films against one another. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can you say X got, you know, X only got you know 26%, this other one got 90%. How can you say 
the opposite. Because they're two different films. Because they're two different films. These are not necessarily things that should be compared. A lot of people say the same thing, even about star ratings. Yeah. Like, I know, I remember uh, people gave a lot of guff to uh, Roger Ebert when he gave three stars to the Garfield movie. To Gar- he, he thought it was fine. Yeah. That's a thumbs up to, to Roger Ebert. Three stars because he really liked uh, Bill Murray in the role and he thought it was funny. Yeah. That's all he needed. Yeah. And that's what he said in his review. This is a, a trifle. It's about a CGI cat. But Bill Murray is funny. I'm going to give it three stars. And meanwhile, he's giving films like Fight Club and uh, and Blue Velvet, like two and two and a half stars. Things that much more ambitious, much loftier, much more intellectual and have much stronger cult audiences. Yeah. You're like, well, how can you give those two stars? And he had to explain over and over and over again. These are not absolute ratings. They're they're relative. And the relative to the movie we're talking about. Yeah. Like again, I didn't actually didn't even see that Garfield, but let's just for the sake of argument <laughs> take that take Ebert's review into mm. account. Ebert isn't even arguing. It's a great Garfield movie. Mm. He's arguing that they tried to make a dumb Garfield movie. They got three stars out of that. Mm. They they got they did pretty well. They had seventy five percent on a Garfield movie. For whatever reason, he wasn't vibing <clears throat> on what David Lynch was going for in Blue Velvet, and he mm. thought that based on what he surmised David Lynch was going for, he didn't quite succeed, and therefore he got a two or two and a half mm. stars, or whatever the fuck it was. That's fine. Again, this is there is a subjectivity to it. I was running into this um, someone. I, I tweeted my review of The Predator. Okay, a movie which. Is enormously flawed. Um, it's not the least entertaining thing I've ever seen, but I think it's a big step down for the franchise, and I think mm. it's a lot of things wrong and ends up feeling kind of gross. Mm. And not in a good way. Not in a, ooh, gross. Like, no, mm. like, ugh, gross. Mm. Um, and I just, here's a negative review. I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was good. Here's my review. And uh, I might have said something a little more snarkly in order to get attention because you have to market yourself a little bit, but well, all I'll, the material I'll, was there in the Also, room. that's that's quite a bad film, actually. Yeah, it, I, it, it, it warrants a little I, bit of snark. I, I stand by that, and someone someone who follows me said, oh, okay, I was looking forward to that. That's, that's too bad. Mm. And then someone else piped in, uh, and there, as they want to do, it's Twitter, uh, saying, hey, that's just one review. Mm. And um, that confused me. And I realized that what they were saying is, hey, you know, all these other reviews are going to come in. Maybe everyone else will like it. And the thing that confused me was, why does that matter? Mm. Because for me, I don't care about the aggregate. I don't care about the consensus. I care about there are people out there whose opinions I put stock in, even if I don't always agree with them. Mm. There's you. There's Alonso Duralde. Oh, there's uh, uh, Ingu Kang. Mm. There's uh, uh, J- Justin Chang. Yeah, Jordan Searles. Like there's a, Amy Nicholson. Yeah, these are good good critics. There's wonderful people out there, mm. and it, whether or not I necessarily agree with their assessment, if they say something and they strongly word it, I'm going to say that's interesting. Okay, mm. I, I I take I put some stock in that, and. That, for me, is more important than looking at, here's what this percentage of critics said in general. Mm. For me, it boils down to, if you find a critic who you like, who you understand, who articulates things in a way that illuminates the medium for you in some way, whether or not you agree with them, Mm. and then you read their reviews, and yeah, it is just one review. And I'm honored that someone put a little stock Mm. in my review. Yeah. It doesn't. It, I, I put stock in your reviews, even though we sometimes disagree. Like I, I know where you're coming from. I know that your uh, positions and that your interpretations are based mm-hmm. off of genuine insight into the medium. That's not just one review. That's mm-hmm. a review from someone I trust. That's yeah. what we should be looking for. And if I'm not that person for you, cool. That's why we have a ton mm-hmm. of critics. 
Yeah, the, we should have a ton of critics for that reason. It, it's it's kind of a pity though that that the discourse has been shaped into that's just one review because what they are looking for is a kind of general consensus over all critics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually wrote wrote a tweet recently. Uh, critics agree they don't like being judged as a, an amorphous mass and would prefer that you read them as individuals. That's a good tweet. Yeah, I can't uh, believe I missed that. That's good. But like, yeah, I think I think some people read reviews in the hopes of some validation mm. that the thing that they hoped they would like might be good. But it's not our job to validate you it, either. It's yeah. not. We're going to tell you how we honestly feel. Mm-hmm. That's the job. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully we do it entertainingly mm-hmm. and in a way that illuminates the genre or the medium again. And mm-hmm. that's it. That's that's the responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's where it goes. L- little preview. We both liked Venom. <laughs> <laughs> kind of liked Venom. I, 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 wouldn't, I enjoyed Venom. But I, I enjoyed I, watching it. There's a, I'm also I, one of those weirdos who liked the 2003 Daredevil film. So go figure that okay. so, Yeah, we'll um, talk about more of do, that. Do you want to do one more letter? Oh, let's call it a quits for now. All right. Um, it, it is quite late. I'm sorry. It is quite late. Right. Um, but uh, thank you, everybody, for writing in. Again, you can email us, canceltoosoon at gmail.com. Uh, we try to read a lot of letters, but we do get them all. So please mm. keep sending them in, even if you haven't heard yours on the air yet. Um, we are on Twitter at canceledcast. Mm-hmm. We're on Patreon at canceltoosoon, patreon.com slash Cancel too soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a whole bunch of bonus content, bonus podcasts, uh, Google Hangouts, other cool stuff as well. Please check that out uh, if you have, uh, if you want to contribute to the show but can't afford to do so on a monthly basis. We also have an Amazon wish list. You can send us DVDs of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. If you have a DVD of The Edge, let me know where I can get it. <laughs> or a VHS. Or a VHS. I have a, I have a working VCR. VHS works. Or, or a VCD. Hey, we'll take anything. <laughs> you have it on 8-track somehow? Well, we'll take it. Do you remember those little video discs that were meant specifically for play in the portable PlayStation? Oh, yeah. What the hell they, were those? They, like mini discs, they, right? They, they, but they weren't playable in any other type of player. They yeah. were only specifically for that portable PlayStation yeah. thing. Like, they marketed movies that way. Yeah. It was bizarre. I know. I don't know why I, I thought I, that would take off. If you were one of those people who had a, not only one of those r- rare that no one ever played portable PlayStations, I think the Atari Lynx was more popular. Uh, <laughs> they were and, more popular And, and you collected Lynx. those the movies for that thing. Let me know, because I want to know if, if you watched movies on that tiny There's screen. There's an article like on there somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's that. There's Patreon. Uh, I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And we'll be back next week with Dark Shadows. So thank you, everybody, for joining us for Scary Toba. And uh, that's a wrap, folks. We'll see you next scary season. <laughs>